Whether the gods are creating the tapestry of destiny or fairy tale characters are using their magic on their loom, weaving actually plays quite a large part in various myths and legends from around the world. We're going to have a look at them in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I hope that you're doing well, as always. I do think, rather, that those words have taken on a little bit of a different tone in the last eight weeks or so. But I do hope that you realise that I do mean them. Um, It's not one of those, like, hollow marketing gestures. And I do genuinely hope that you're safe and well. We're going to jump straight into this week's episode because there is a fair bit to get through. Now, the last two weeks, obviously, we've been focusing on blacksmith gods and legends and folklore of blacksmiths. So we're changing gear completely this week and we're looking at weaving instead. And we're going to be looking at a whole range of things. We're going to be looking at ancient Greece, the Norse pantheon, the Lady of Shalott and even the Emperor's new clothes. So we do have a fair bit to get through. So I figured that that might be a good time to just simply dive right into it. Now, as you might imagine you do tend to get a lot of relationship between this idea of weaving, so essentially creating pictures out of just threads, and creator deities. And ancient Egypt is no different. We have the goddess Neith, who is sometimes considered to be the very first creator of ancient Egypt. And in some of the myths, she was the one who literally came before everything else and brought everything else into being. This title is also given to Pitar, the god of smiths, who we briefly met last week. Now, Neith was the goddess of, among other things, weaving, water, mothers, childbirth, wisdom, hunting and fate. And I think that link between fate and weaving is quite interesting and we will come back to that later on in the episode. Now, Neith was one of ancient Egypt's oldest deities and the earliest depictions do focus on her more warlike aspects. And when the Greeks began absorbing Egyptian myths the way that they did, she was identified with Athena, who was also a goddess of wisdom and war and also the weaver goddess. And speaking of Athena, we're going to move on to our first myth, and this is Athena and the spider. Now, the ancient Greeks really did have several myths that involved weaving, and we're going to cover one about spinning next week. But perhaps the most famous involved a talented young weaver named Arachne. Considered a marvel by all who saw her work, Arachne eventually boasted that she was a better weaver than Athena, the goddess of weaving herself challenge accepted and one day Athena appeared in Arachne's dwelling to take up this challenge. During the competition she weaves cautionary images of what happens when the mortals challenge the gods which is a fairly good warning if you ask me. Arachne on the other hand weaves images of the gods taking advantage of mortals. Hardly the most sensitive subject matter given her competitor. Clearly Athena erupted in anger when she saw Arachne's finished work. Some say that Athena was furious that Arachne was better than her, and others point out that Athena was actually more enraged by Arachne's presumption and disrespect of the gods. Either way, it doesn't really matter which version's right, Arachne was done for. And in some versions of the myth, 
Athena turns Arachne into a spider out of spite. And in other versions, Arachne actually runs outside and hangs herself in shame after realising how she's disrespected Athena. And then as a kind of act of mercy and or perhaps even guilt, Athena then turns her into a spider to preserve her weaving ability for all time. Now, the Romans also adopted this myth around Minerva, Athena's Roman counterpart, but either way, Arachne keeps her name and gives us the root of Arachnid. And obviously, you will be pleased to know that if you do go to visit the blog post for this episode to look at the images, there are no pictures of spiders. There is a spider web, but no spiders. I just feel like I should put that on there because I know some people are mortally terrified of them. As for weaving in general, we also have Penelope Shroud, and Penelope was the wife of Odysseus, left behind while he undertook his odyssey. And quite frankly, I think Penelope is a complete legend, and I really want to do some more research into her, because I just think that's just fantastic. And basically, Odysseus has gone for so long that other suitors start vying for a hand, because most people actually presume that he's dead. She's not really got any desire to marry again and I think she's probably deep down quite convinced that Odysseus is still coming back. So she decides to get out of it and she puts her weaving skills to good use. Now bearing in mind weaving is the kind of thing a high-born woman would be expected to learn. So while it's considered a craft it is also an art form at the same time so that's why she'll be allowed to do it. But she promises that she'll take another suitor only when she's finished weaving a shroud for her father-in-law. And she dutifully carries out a weaving by day and then unravels her work by night, which obviously keeps the shroud unfinished. And what I love about this is she manages to keep this going for three years until an idiotic maid betrays her. And her advantage is that she knows the men have no clue about weaving. They see it as women's work, so they just take her at her word that she's still working on it. And I do have to wonder how Athena felt about such a slight against her great craft. But thanks to Penelope's weaving, she does manage to put off the suitors for a little bit longer. She's got other tricks up her sleeve as well, but I just thought as we're talking about weaving that that was just a cool one to put in there. Because you don't get very many sort of intelligent or sort of almost tricksy women in Greek mythology. So it's quite nice that Penelope is both and also loyal to her husband. So that's quite nice. I think Penelope's great. Anyway. Our final Greek mythology and weaving related story comes from John Scheid and Jesper Svenbro and they actually noted that there was a form of Olympic Games specifically for women at Olympia and these were called the Herea and they took place basically in honour of the goddess Hera who's the consort of Zeus and while the games were going on women would weave a robe for her and this happened every four years. And the practice dated to a period when the tyrannical ruler of Pisa died and the Pisans decided rather than having the same destructive path as their ruler, they would make peace with the Eleans. And a noble woman was then chosen from the 16 cities in Elis to try and find a way to make peace. So these women, not only did they actually broker peace and maintain it, they also ran the Herean Games and then they managed the weaving of this robe. Now, to Scheid and Svenbro, they negotiated peace so well, and I quote, that only the collective weaving of a cloak for the statue of Hera at Olympia seemed adequate to commemorate it, end quote. And they liken the way that the threads fall into place during weaving to the process of peace talks. And the women repeated this weaving every four years, and then they would make a new cloak, take down the old one, and give Hera the new one. And this new weaving basically represented a continuation of peace. Now, Scheid and Svenbro continue the political metaphor with the disorder of the raw wool replaced by an organised fabric and at this point all the fibres are in their correct place. 
and weaving cloth actually becomes a metaphor for unity, harmony and peace itself. And given Hera was also the goddess of marriage, you can see why she'd be an ideal deity to represent this kind of unity woven from conflict. We're going to leave ancient Greece behind now and we're going to head off to the Norse mythology. And here we're going to meet the Norns and they were the weavers of fate. There doesn't seem to be any set number of Norns because the various sources do disagree on this. And the Norns don't really fit into any category of being. So they're not gods, they're not elves, they're not dwarves or anything else. But everyone in the Nine Realms not fears them, but they certainly respect their ability because essentially the Norns are above everybody else. And the poem Voluspar claims that there are three. The first is Urd, the second is Vedandi, and the third is Skuld. And they represent past, present and future respectively. Now, in this case, the Norns essentially represent the idea of fate and they do correspond to the three fates of Greek mythology who we're going to meet more in depth next week. And different versions of the legends essentially see them creating fate in a variety of ways, but the one that concerns us here, as you might imagine, is weaving. So in these versions, they would actually weave reality itself and essentially life and everything that happened in it became a tapestry. Human sorceresses might be able to embellish it, but they couldn't change the picture and thus alter someone's fate. And Daniel McCoy points out that no one actually worshipped the Norns, but the idea of fate gave the Vikings a way to make sense of seemingly random or chaotic events, much as I think people probably cling to such an idea now. And throughout the Viking poems, people then go on to blame the Norns for situations that they don't like, which, again, I think people probably tend to do with fate. But like the fates in Greek mythology, the Norns don't actually make up destiny just to annoy people, they simply weave it in their tapestry. And the job of the Vikings was then to meet their fate with their head held high, and as McCoy puts it, to go down fighting. So the Norns, they don't really appear in any set stories per se, but it's, it's this idea of weaving reality. Now that neatly sets up the Lady of Shalott, which might seem like a bit of a strange segue, but go with me on this one. So the Lady of Shalott appears in the Arthurian legends as Elaine of Astolat and she then goes on to gain wider fame when Alfred Tennyson reworks the legend into a lyrical ballad. And the mysterious lady lives in a castle on an island in the middle of a river and this river actually eventually flows to Camelot. And a strange curse means that she can't ever look out of the window at the real world. She can only see what's going on outside by looking at the world's reflection in a mirror. And the lady in turn weaves scenes of daily life on her loom. And this is all based on what she's looking at in the mirror. Eventually, she spots Lancelot in the mirror and is so taken with him that she abandons her weaving and she actually goes and looks out the window directly at Lancelot. The curse cracks her mirror because she's essentially broken what she was supposed to be doing and she leaves her castle. She goes looking for a boat down by the river, finds one and then heads down to Camelot on the river but she actually dies in the boat before she can get there. You do find her in quite a lot of the pre-Raphaelite art and there's a beautiful one by John William Waterhouse where she's literally in the boat on the way to Camelot but she's still alive at that point. Now what I think is quite interesting is the fact that her death at not looking in the mirror is almost the inverse of Perseus defeating Medusa in Greek mythology because he only wins because he looks in the reflective surface of his shield and one day I will write more about that but today is not that day. Anyway, the critical response to Tennyson's poem largely concerns its handling of the female experience and also female empowerment and some people think it's this feminist 
legend. Other people really had a go at Tennyson for it. Now, all of those debates really do lie beyond the scope of this post because I'm not even really that interested in the liberties that Tennyson took with the original Arthurian legend. What I am interested in is this edition of weaving. So not only does the lady consume the world as a series of images, she also creates images through her weaving. And her position as a creator of images eventually recalls those creator deities who weave the world into being. And obviously we opened this episode with Neith, who wove the world into being in ancient Egyptian myth. And in a way, even links back to the Norns as well, who are just sitting there merrily weaving the tapestry of destiny. Now, the Lady of Shalott's issue is weaving what she sees in reflections, not the real world. And that basically makes her tapestries a copy of a copy, which would be a little bit like making a painting that you are basing on a photograph. You're not actually taking it from real life itself. And pre-Raphaelite artist William Holman Hunt paints her literally caught up in the threads of her work. And here she's essentially tangled up in the threads of the curse, literally caught in the images that make up her experience of the world. And once she sees reality outside of the mirror, she can't create her world into being anymore. And that's why she dies. And I do think that's an interesting difference between the creator deities who can weave the world into being and the Lady of Shalott, because hers is based on the fact she sees the world secondhand in the mirror. Now, we're also going to lead on to another fictional tale for our final segment of this episode. And you might think it's a bit of an odd one, but there is a reason I've included it. And that's the Emperor's New Clothes. And you must know this classic story by Hans Christian Andersen, where you've got this emperor who's used to the finest things in life and he wants to show off that he has the best clothes in the kingdom. Nowadays, he would no doubt be on Instagram and probably be considered an influencer. And he comes across this pair of weavers, or at least they claim that they're weavers, who say that the fabric they weave for him will be the most beautiful fabric he's ever seen. Even more, it'll only be visible to those who are fit to practice their profession. So it's going to sort of act like a bit of a filtration system for them as well. Now, these weavers, and I say this in inverted commas, make the fabric, but of course no one can see it. And it's a really clever ruse because no one actually wants to admit that they can't see it. Because if they they say they can't see it, then that essentially means they're no longer fit for their position in society. So everyone goes along with this gag in a drastic case of keeping up appearances. Even the emperor, he can't see the fabric either. And he even gets one of his most trusted ministers to go and have a look at it for him. And it just goes to show nobody wants to admit that they can't see it because of that, how that will reflect on them. And it takes a young child, because obviously this kid doesn't care one way or the other, to essentially go, hang on, the emperor's not wearing any clothes, to make people realise that the fabric isn't just invisible, it doesn't actually exist at all. Now, this is why I've included it, because while it's not a folktale itself, this story might actually have origins in older folktales. And The Emperor's New Clothes was published in 1837, but the book Tudor Folktales actually relates a very similar tale from Tudor, England, and I have linked my book review of this book below and there should be an an episode of the podcast where I looked at it as well but in case you haven't heard that or read it basically what happens is in this older Tudor tale a notable swindler swaps fine fabric for a beautiful painting so he goes to this really wealthy guy and is going to paint him this beautiful painting and again only people who are worthy are going to be able to see it nobody wants to admit that they can't see it because they don't want to admit that they're not worthy so the con man gets away with it So Anderson's story focuses on the pitfalls of pride and vanity in the same way that the older one does. But why choose weaving? There's no way of knowing if he ever heard the Tudor variant and painting would equally make sense for the period in which Anderson was writing as well. 
But what we need to look at is the fact that 1837 falls towards the end of the first industrial revolution and before the introduction of machinery, crafts like weaving would have been done at home or in small workshops. And the flying shuttle and the power loom, among many others, made it faster and cheaper to create cloth in factories. So weavers then lost their status as skilled craftspeople in the face of new machinery. I've got to admit, I have no idea what Anderson's politics actually were, but could he have chosen weavers on purpose? Was their attempt to humiliate the emperor, while yes, they are swindlers, but was it also a literary form of revenge for the working class who'd lost their industry? Emily Petsko notes that Anderson himself worked in a factory when he was 11 to help support his mother, so I don't imagine would have a huge amount of love for factory life. And Maria Popova also points out that Anderson spent his childhood listening to old women telling each other folk tales. So, could a variation of this Tudor tale have been a part of his childhood education? We'll never know, but I do think it's an interesting way of looking at why suddenly take painting and turn it into weaving. Is it because of this idea of creating something out of nothing, in which case the swindlers create nothing out of something, which is obviously the twist on the story. And all it really boils down to, everything in these stories and tales and legends, and there are many, many more than I can fit into an episode of this podcast, or it would be about a year long, is this idea that people are exceptionally skilled who do weaving. There's a great deal of of ability involved, but there's also this idea that because you're creating something out of nothing, you're therefore linked with these creator deities as well. So it's kind of a an almost fatalistic way of looking at the world. So I hope that you enjoyed that and we are going to have a look at its companion piece spinning next week and then we'll be doing things around shoemaking because it's a fairly obvious one for folk tales and it was a request uh, for our final one in May. We are going to actually be looking at things related to witchcraft for June because I did run a poll on Twitter and Instagram and witchcraft was the one that most people wanted. If you did want the folklore of health and medicine don't worry it is coming later in the year. So we will be looking at more witchy type things in June. So I hope that you enjoy that and hope that you stick around for that. I am also going to be in the process very, very soon of doing the next Patreon subscriber exclusive. So if you're at the $4 a month or more higher tier, look out for that towards the end of the month because it'll be dropping into your Patreon inbox. Other than that, I'm going to keep this relatively short because it's been a fairly long episode. So I hope that you have a marvellous week ahead and I hope that you come back next week to learn about spinning in folklore and legend. So I will see you then. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!